0: I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, we are joined by Louise Schwartz, founder and co-owner of Recycling Alternatives. Our host, Am Jo Hall, talks with Louise about how the culture of recycling has changed since 1989 when Recycling Alternatives first started and what future possibilities could help keep more waste out of landfills.
1: Welcome to Below the Radar. We're here with Louise Schwartz from Recycling Alternatives. Welcome, Louise.
2: Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here.
1: So, Louise, the garbage lady, how did you get involved with
2: trash? With trash. Well, I'll tell you, it's uh, sad to say it's almost 30 years ago. Whoa before recycling was in, uh, really what happened was I had a wake-up call. I had an epiphany around this whole notion of away. You know, when you say, I'm going to throw it away, what does that mean? There's no away. And now we hear people speaking this way more and more. But in 1989, people were not speaking like that. And so despite my background in political science and Spanish literature and a degree in education, I decided that I would... Uh, get into my hatchback with my overalls and I started driving around picking up, you know, paper from offices and businesses. And I started just with paper, but really the wake up call was around away. Like what, what are we saying when we say we're going to throw it away? There is no way. And now we're really up against this. You know, this is so, it's absolutely um, so present in our conversations.
1: When you first started, uh, you know, recycling wasn't really on the radar in quite the same way. And how did the the economics of running a social enterprise work at that time? And then maybe talk a little bit also about like how it's evolved over since you've really had a front row seat the last yeah. 30 years.
2: yeah. So so think about this. Like when, when we started, you know, Recycling Alternative and when I, I started it and then Robert Weatherby, who's my business partner, became involved and we continued to, to, to run it together. He, he saw me in my first year in a hatchback and thought, this is ridiculous. I've got to get in and help this friend of mine. But, you know, this is before Blue Boxes right? So people really thought we were out there. And in the in the early days, and it still works a bit this way, you know, you're working with your materials. Can you sell those materials? Can you move them onto a market? And uh, of course, we can talk a little bit about that later. I mean, there's huge um, challenges now that we're hearing about all this material that goes offshore. Uh, so in those days, in the very beginning, you know, our first, we were sort of, we sort of had a sliding scale, you know, could you pay $10 a month? Could you pay 15 Could you pay 20 And that's how we try to sort of support, And we literally used to take the hatchback or then there was a $2,000 van involved and we would run it over the scale. And, you know, at that time, the main recycling plant was in the middle of the Olympic Village in what is now that, you know, the salt building, the red house, the craft beer place. Great to go and have a beer. But, you know, we spent the you know, those, those years in the nineties driving over scales to weigh off the hatchback, take off the newsprint, then drive back over the scales, weigh off the days of computer matrix paper. That was very lucrative, that stuff. That was the highest value paper. That was like, you know, worth 100 or $200 a metric ton. And then, of course, you know, eventually we phased that out because we went to our laser printers and thought we were going paperless. We're finally getting there. But, you know, I'm only, we're only starting to see paperless offices really in the last four to five years. That didn't happen, you know, 10 years ago when we thought it was going to happen.
1: Now, uh, walk me through uh, how you go about your work now. I know you have a facility, United We Can is, is part of that. The Binners Project is located in this building, but there's a whole series of different people doing this. I've seen you in conversation with groups around the circular economy, but yeah. how would you describe the, the situation right now?
2: Well, uh, a few things. First of all, you know, what's happening, you've got to keep in, in mind there's kind of a big garbage world out there, meaning I'm talking big garbage, just like you talk about big oil. You know, one of the largest land, the largest landfilling company in the world. You know, uh, waste management. This is who we're competing against. And so, for all our years growing, we were working very much individually with offices, a lot of early adopters, a lot of nonprofits that were taking this on. Say in the 90s, and then sort of when we hit the millennium, really more and more of an uptake. But when we're working now, you know, we're working with some large corporate groups, like we do property management companies who are running say, Pacific Centre, food courts, huge, you know, huge facilities, office towers. So we really have to be able to be competitive and, and compete with those large garbage companies out there going, coming from a recycling first perspective, which now that the public perception has changed is easier to do. People are, you know, they're much more aware of what they're doing with their waste. But for many years, we were out on the side. You know, main business was garbage, garbage with a little bit of recycling on the side. Now it's the opposite. Recycling's the main course and there's a bit of trash possibly or waste on the side. So that's kind of the space we work. Our trucks are moving off to, you know, we're, we're doing a lot that's going on in the bowels of Vancouver under, you know, under the, the the towers. If if you stand somewhere like the art gallery and you look down towards the water, a lot of those office towers, we're stripping the material out from from those buildings. And... So that's one side of it, and then the other side, a bit as you've mentioned, Am, is looking towards a kind of what does localized recovery look like? What does really taking responsibility for these materials, um, looking at circular models? Can we take them? We're working a lot with food waste, and how can we turn that into material right here, right now, and then put it back out into the local landscaping and urban growing? Same with paper. Plastics is tricky. Because when was the last time we saw plastics manufacturing going on in British Columbia? So where is that stuff going? So we all need to get, I think, pretty real with the public as to how we either have to minimize some of these materials or start looking at infrastructure that supports the localization and circularity. Uh, we
1: just had the city of Vancouver come in with some uh, policy changes yesterday around uh, single-use plastics, straws, to fees around coffee cups and those kinds of things. But wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, the city of Vancouver's approach in terms of what's working and what's not related to recycling and garbage
2: so uh we're behind those types of that type of regulation we spoke to that to those motions at council the other day it was very long meetings that motion itself went way on into the into the night because it is tricky to start to look at how we're going to wean ourselves off this kind of addiction to our single-use items. And so we applaud the city for starting to take that kind of leadership and looking at it, but it's going to be tricky. And there's a whole bunch of conversations around, okay, what are the materials, you know, um, accessibility is one topic around this, where, where these materials are needed to be used, maybe maybe in either medical applications or individuals with disabilities that need to use some of these items. But we uh, we think it's a great... Strategy to start, but a lot of it is also looking at the quality of these materials, and you know where are they being made, where are they being circulated, how can we stop the leakage out? And and hold these materials here, and of course it's very tricky in a in a province like British Columbia that was such a resource extractive kind of economy. But we haven't done anything to develop the infrastructure. We've got all these plants that sit out now, going you know closing down the, clo- the you know the closures say in the pulp in, pulp industry, uh, same in mining. And how could we look at reestablishing some of that infrastructure for localizing our trash and keeping it here and doing something with it and creating employment and opportunity out of that?
1: Now with a a company like yours, uh, Recycling Alternatives, what could the levels of government be doing better from a policy point of view that would allow you to do your work better, keep more waste um, uh, out of uh, the landfills and uh, would actually allow uh, allow businesses and organizations like yours to thrive in comparison to Big Garba or like the bigger organizations in terms of the policy frameworks that are limiting uh, your capacity?
2: Yeah. Well, I think a big one is, uh, and, and we've been uh, advocating for this, is looking at requiring and regulating the requirement of recycled stock, uh, recycled content in materials that are being produced. So that uh, if you are producing something that there has to be, whether it's a, a, a paper product, a fiber product, a plastics product, that it is required that there is a minimal, I mean, m- substantial, I mean, 30 to 50 percent minimal of um, recycling content in that because what's happened in our crisis and this is why you're seeing all this material we haven't stopped the bleed at the source we're still consuming consuming a lot of this material with not very much market value anymore keep in mind it's still cheaper to take oil out of the ground right now than it is to make recycled resins for plastics so there's something wrong with our model here if if it's if it's if it's economically more viable to extract from the planet than it would be to collect all our stuff and Recycle that, manage that. So uh, recycled content uh, regulation is, is key. We also think that in, in um, programs like extended producer responsibility that you hear about, things like the computers, things like the tires, which are an EPR, extended producer responsibility, means they go into a program. One of the um, uh, criteria and caveats must be that that material is managed here again in a circular type of uh, model so that it's not linear. It's not going out of the system.
1: Louise, anything you'd like to add?
2: No, just that, well, I guess really that it's, it's so critical now. What I think about trash is trash is one of the things that touches all of us. It's really, um, it's very visceral and it's, uh, it's, um, it's really transformational if you can connect with your waste. And I think this is what's happening now. People in the zero waste movement, trash used to be at the bottom of the barrel. It's rising right up. It's something everybody can do something about is their waste.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar, Louise, the garbage philosopher of Vancouver. Thank, Thank you.
2: you, Anne. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thanks again to Louise Schwartz for joining us on Below the Radar. To learn more about the work that Recycling Alternatives does, you can check out their website, which we have linked in the episode description. Stay in the loop with Below the Radar by following us on Twitter and Facebook, and be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. We want to thank the team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Paige Smith, Fiorella Pinos, Kathy Fang, and Jackie Obunga. David Steele is the composer of our theme music, and thank you for listening. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Below the Radar.